The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, and if you don't have one, use one from the chair in front of you. And turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been working our way through Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the faith chapter in the Bible because the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians that were tempted to turn away from God and he's encouraging them by reminding them of people from the past that learned to live by faith. And we've been going through the chapter and looking at these people and, um, Three weeks ago, we started looking at Abraham, and Abraham is the called the father of faith. He's the one that is known for faith, and, and in fact, all those who believe are called sons of Abraham. Um, and we, we started in Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, looking at Abraham and Sarah, how God led him from his homeland, God promised him a child, and and But Sarah couldn't have any children. They had to wait a long time. And it wasn't until Abraham was 100, his wife was 99, that they finally had a child. And then we we saw that there was a bit of a break, like a parenthesis in the chapter in verses 13 to 16, where the writer of Hebrews sort of takes a little break and, and gives us some insight into what it means to live by faith. And he, he helped us to see the tension of living by faith that Abraham went through, but also how faith shapes our desires and how it encourages us to move in a certain direction. Today we're in verses 17 to 19. And this is where we're brought back to the life of Abraham in an event that gives us um, the most challenging, one of the most challenging stories in the Bible. Because it seems that what God is asking Abraham to do just sounds unreasonable. It appears that God is acting out of character. And it, Abraham is asked to do the unthinkable, offering his son as a sacrifice. Another unusual thing to note about Abraham is that he is the only one in this chapter, with all the people that are listed, where it specifically says, God tested him. He was te- his faith was tested. And Abraham was one of those that had already demonstrated great faith in God. I mean, we, we, we looked at his story in Genesis 12. God comes to him and he says, I want you to leave your country. I want to leave your family. I want you to go to a place that, that I'm going to show you. And Abraham follows God. He obeys God. He was 75 at that stage. And now, uh, it's like a hundred years later, he goes through the whole process of waiting for this miracle child to be born when he and Sarah are past childbearing age. And, and then they have a child and it's like he has made progress. And now his son is probably in his teens or twenties. I mean, he's been living a, a long time and now he's ready to die, as the, the passage told us last time, watching the future, knowing that God had a future for him. He was looking for the city, the country that God had prepared for him. He had lived a full life. He was ready to be done. You, you'd think that time was up, you know? you think that at some point that he would, it would be time for a break. 
But that's not how the story ends. Because even though he's been watching this young man grow up to be uh, an, an adult, God comes to Abraham, and the first part of verse 17, you'll notice it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him. He's 75 years old. Really? Like, why does he need to be tested? He's already proven himself to be a man of faith. Like, he's already been through this long process over decades, demonstrating that his faith was in God. I mean, he's he's been following God for like 40 years. And it, and it hasn't he already proven himself? I mean, for, for some of you here, you've been following God for that long. For me, it's it's been over 50 years. For some of you, you're ready for your 10-year pin or 20-year pin. Sorry, we don't give those out. But, you know, we think, you know, this you talk about decades. That's a long time to demonstrate faith in God. And, and many of us can tell stories of how God worked in our lives. And, and for some, I, I imagine these young people and the people that got baptized today will look back on the time they got baptized as one of those moments where, where they demonstrated faith in God, where God worked in their lives. And through the years, things happened in, you know, in my life when my mother died, when I was in my teens, that was a momentous time when God tested my faith and I grew in my relationship with him. And you think that after 40 years, isn't it enough to know that the person has demonstrated faith? Is there any point where we can say, I've made it? I can sit down and put my feet up because I've graduated from the school of faith, right? It's like I've, I've demonstrated my, my faith and God, I got the diploma, it's on my wall, I can coast now. Unfortunately, you don't find that in the Bible. In fact, what we find is not somebody just coming to an end point. The only end point when it comes to faith is the moment you die. Because after that, it's too late to say, oh, oh, no, 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 I'm, now I'm going to believe. I'm, now I'm going to have faith in God. It's too late. And if you have been following God for many years and you die, then you don't need faith because you're in the presence of God. The, you know, what you were longing for, what you were hoping for is now a reality. So faith, faith sort of doesn't apply then because we, we have sight. The unseen will become seen. It's finally ours. But until you get to that point, you need to exercise faith and live by faith. Now, here's a question that we need to ask ourselves in light of this. How do you know that your faith is legitimate? Like we all, you probably all know of people that, you know, used to believe in their, you know, earlier years. And now they, they quit believing, walked away from the Lord. I, sadly, I can, I know of several Bible college professors that are, that walked away from the Lord and now themselves to be atheists. It's sad. And there's no guarantee that just because you say you believe, it doesn't mean that you actually believe. And so one of the reasons why God tests us is to help us know if it's, if it's for real, if our faith is for real. And another reason why he tests us is to see, not only to test if your faith is for real, but also to help your faith to grow. And we're going to see this as we, as we go along and to understand what God is doing here. Now, 
remember that the writer of Hebrews is more interested in giving us an explanation of these people, of what they did, instead of the the details of what actually happened in the events that he refers to. So that's why you read through, and, and a lot of times we see like one little verse, boom, you know, this happened. And it's like without a lot of details. So I'm going to read Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, which gives us the explanation. And then I'm going to have to go back to Genesis 22, where the event, where we have a record of the event this is referring to, and we will talk about it then. So let's start with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now, to get the full impact, we have to go back to Genesis 22. And I don't have time to read all of Genesis 22. So I'll just have to tell you the story and and mention um, some things from it. Now, it's important to notice as we talk about this, that Abraham did not have the information that you and I have in reading this story. Uh, remember years ago when um, you're watching TV and it's like, it's like, this is a test of the emergency broadcasting system, you know, a big red screen and, and, and you sit there saying, okay, it's a test. Let's get it over with and get on with life. And, and, or maybe at school when they said, okay, we're having a fire drill this afternoon. So be ready where it's a fire drill. And so the alarm goes off and like, oh yeah, there's the drill or great. We get to skip class for a little bit. It's like, you don't. You don't think about it as a test. You know it's just a test, so it's no big deal, right? It, it, now, if, if, if you were just going through life and the fire alarm went off, we would say, oh, no, something's wrong here. You wouldn't know it's a test, and you would, you would react differently. Abraham doesn't understand that this is a test in his life. We do, and we know how it ends up, so we read it a little bit differently than he did. But in this, we need to put ourselves where Abraham was and realize this is a true test of Abraham's faith. And he knows that God is giving him him an unthinkable command to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This is just, it's hard for us to even imagine that God would ask for this. But since we know it's a test, we know that, okay, it all ends up well. But Abraham, here he is, a man who who knows that God did not approve of human sacrifice. I mean, the other people around him, the other countries, they would have human sacrifice in their religion. They would sacrifice their children so that their crops would produce. They would sacrifice children for things to happen, to somehow please the God. But Abraham knew that's not the way God operated. So, like, why would God be asking me to do this? And he knows... That not only does God condemn human sacrifice, Abraham would have a hard time understanding how God can promise him something that depended on the life of his child carrying on. Like God promised that Abraham, Abraham's descendants would be a great nation. And now we're going to kill the only option of this, of this being fulfilled. Like for Abraham, this is like totally, it doesn't make any sense. And throughout this chapter, the emphasis on son in in Genesis 22, you see the word son appear 10 times. In fact, three times it's qualified as your only son. 
God knows exactly what he's asking Abraham to do. He's asking him to put to death the thing that he was putting his hope in. And Abraham is caught between two very awful choices. On the one hand, he loves God. He recognizes that God is his hope. His, God is the one who made promises to, to him. God is his future. And he also loves his son. His son is his future. And he's caught between the love of God and the love of his son. And now God is asking him to kill his son. And not only that, he's also torn between the fact that the promises that God made are bound up in the life of the son. If he kills the son, where is his future? It's gone. So he's stuck. And God is asking him to deliberately sabotage the plan and thereby kill the promise that God made. It doesn't make any sense. It's interesting to notice that the command that God gives in Genesis 22 is very similar to the command that God gave to Genesis, the first command he God gave, God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's house and go. In Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go. Again, he's telling them, you need to follow me. You need to do what I'm asking you. I know what I'm doing and you need to trust me. And so Abraham isn't hearing God for the first time. He's been following God all of his life and obeying him. And now he simply obeys. Now, I would suspect if God asked me to do something like that, but my first, my first response would be, yeah, I'm not sure God would ask me to do that. So I'm going to take some time to make sure it was God that is, is telling me that. And secondly, I would think, okay, if, if this is what I have to do, then I need to just take some time to, you know, say goodbye to my, my son. Maybe we'll go on vacation together. Do something before our relationship is over. And, but Abraham doesn't do that. In fact, in verse three, it says, Early the next morning, Abraham begins his sad, long journey. Like Abraham gets up the next morning. He knows what God has called him to do. He's trusting God. And immediately he does what God asks him to do. Now, I want to show you a map of the journey that Abraham had to take. And if you look on the map, Beersheba is in the south. And it's, it's about a 72-kilometer trek from Beersheba all the way up to Mount Moriah. Now, I've also put on an outline of this, uh, of Genesis 22 up on the screen for you because it's a fascinating chapter. And this outline, if you, uh, if you go back and take a look at it, uh, later as you read it, um, somebody identified that there's, the chapter outlines in these, in these, it's like journeys. So from Beersheba to Moriah. And if you look at, at the text, each section begins with somebody speaking to Abraham and Abraham responding, here I am. First, God speaks to Abraham. Abraham responds, here I am. And then in verse four, it ends with they will, they, they went off together. And so there's this little pattern that takes place through this, through this, these chapters. So the next one, beginning at verse seven. So that, that was verse six, verses seven and eight. Then you have the son saying to Abraham, father and abraham responds here i am and then that section ends with both of them going off together and then you have the angel speaking to abraham calling out abraham and abraham says here i am and then this section ends off with both of them going off together it just shows how this 
how Moses writes this and he puts this together in this, in this journey. And as you read the story, the details are given almost like the story almost drags on. And we have a lot of details that are included. He, he saddles his donkey. He takes two servants. He cuts the wood. And you think he has to have enough wood to burn a body. Like we're talking about a significant amount of wood. Then he sets out on the, in the region God tells him to go. And we're not told what Abraham is thinking through this journey. But I suspect that he was, what he was thinking was very similar to what Jesus was thinking when he was in the garden before he went to the cross to be sacrificed. Where he was praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way of this happening, let it happen. But there's no indication that Abraham is holding back from obeying God. And he's trusting God that somehow God is going to do what he promised. And on the third day in the journey, he looks ahead and somehow God lets him know, there's the mountain I want you to go up, Mount Moriah. And he makes his way and he tells, tells his servants to stay with the donkey while he and his son go to worship. And in Genesis 22, verse 5, he makes this amazing statement. He says, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham is believing that somehow if God said this boy was going to be alive, somehow God has to keep him alive. And if it means I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him. But God's going to have to bring him back to life because the the promises are bound up in this boy. And he believed that somehow, in some way, God was going to fulfill his promise. And so Abraham goes, takes his son. They make their way up the mountain. They have the fire. They have the knife. They go together. And at some point up the climb, Isaac says to him, ask him a pretty important question. He says, Father, and Abraham responds. He says, we have fire. We have wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, we need, we need an animal. We, he knew, he knew that you, you kill an animal, you, you put him on the altar, you burn it and offer it up. It's offering up something special, something precious to God to indicate how valuable God is. And, and Isaac is saying, like, where's, where's the sacrifice? That question would have been like a knife to Abraham's heart. How could he say, you are the sacrifice? He couldn't. Instead, he simply says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What, what amazing faith. What amazing confidence in God. Even though, even though he was willing to do, he, he didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to him. But he knew that God somehow would provide. And after climbing for some time, we don't know how long it took. They find the place. And Abraham gathers some rocks and forms this crude altar and he takes the wood and puts it on and binds his son. And you have to think, you know, here's this boy. He's, he's got to be, either, he's, we don't know exactly how old he is, but most people assume he's got to be like at least in his late teens or early 20s. I mean, he's strong enough. He could have taken on his father. His father's like 120. He's an old man, okay? Now, there's nobody here 120, so I know that I'm not offending anybody by calling him an old man. But he, he's, he doesn't have the strength that his 20-year-old son has. His, his son could easily have just said, 
no way, I'm out of here. I'm not having anything to do with this. But in some way, we, we see the faith of Isaac, that Isaac is willing to be bound by his father. He trusts his father, and somehow he trusts God to be doing what's right, and he submits to his father, and he's put on the altar, and Abraham raises the knife up to kill his son, and the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. I, you have to think that maybe the angel called his name twice to make sure he didn't miss it. You know, say, don't, like, don't pay, pay attention, Abraham. I got something to say to you. And Abraham, I'm sure, gave a huge sigh of relief. Here I am. And he says, don't kill your son because I know that you fear God. Now, this is a, an amazing, an amazing point, amazing stage that Abraham finds himself in. The angel says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It's like you have not withheld from me your most valuable possession. I know that I am more important to you than the most important thing that you have in this life. Now, does that statement imply God didn't know what Abraham was thinking and this is the only way he could find out? No. We know that God knows everything. God knows our hearts. God tests you not to find out what, so that he can somehow find something out. He tests you to, for you to understand what is going on in your heart. And for Abraham, this statement helps Abraham know that his relationship with God just jumped to a new level. Because he, Abraham was never before this confronted with the choice of God or my son, my only son, the one my hope is in, the one my future is, is, is resting on, my savior. He's the one that's going to rescue me from, from oblivion, from living, from dying and leaving, leaving no posterity from the family name being obliterated from the earth. And this was the first time And his choice solidified in Abraham's heart that he loved God more than his greatest treasure in earth. And that love made him do whatever God asked him to do. Even if it seemed illogical and unthinkable. Now, what did the angel mean by saying, now I know you fear God? Uh, Fearing God is not being scared of God, but it's recognizing how great God is. It's recognizing that he is supreme, that, that we trust him completely. We obey him without question. And even though Abraham did not physically kill his son, God knew that in his heart he was willing. And if God let him, he would have done it. And immediately after the angel finished talking, Abraham heard the bleeding of a ram, an adult sheep caught in the thicket. And he goes and realizes God has provided the lamb and he sacrifices the lamb. Did you know that a thousand years after this, King Solomon builds the temple? We don't know exactly where, where they had the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, but on Mount Moriah, that's where the temple in Jerusalem is built. And a thousand years after that, Another lamb is sacrificed. Jesus, the son of God. He goes up to the mountain and is sacrificed. God's one and only son dies for the sins of the world. Now let's return to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 to understand what, what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us here. 
Now, we've already seen the first part of this verse where it says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. We get that. Now, I want you to see the second half of verse 17 because it's key. It says, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Now, think about that. He who had embraced the promises, because he chose to embrace God's promises, he chose to make the promises something he was holding on to. He could let go of anything else that was secondary to that. His son was was something that he was trusting in for his future. It's like his son was his savior. Abraham thought that his son was, was his significance was bound up in his son. The promise that God made was determined by keeping keeping his son alive. And he thought that his son, his reason for living was wrapped up in his son. And God helps him realize that that was wrong. The boy did not make his life meaningful. God did. And it's interesting when you think about the two big decisions that of faith that God asked Abraham to make. The first one was leaving his homeland. Remember Genesis 12, he says, leave your homeland, leave your family and go to the place that I'm telling you. He was basically telling Abraham, Abraham, I want you to, I want you to leave your past. Now he's saying to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your future. I want you to leave behind what you think is your future. And I want you to realize that your life is not bound up in your identity from your past or your hopes in the future, the thing you're trusting in. Your identity, your hope, your future is found in me and my promises. And you and I face the same challenge that Abraham did, just slightly different. What is it that you are putting your hope and your trust in? What is it that you long for in life? What is it that you think that's really going to make your life meaningful? What is it that, that you're, you're bound up in? You know, this whole, this whole idea of testing is something that testing of faith is something that you find from Genesis to Revelation. Well, yeah, Revelation also. In Genesis, God, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And what does he do? He gives them a tree. What's the tree for to test them? The tree is to test them. Are you going to trust me or are you going to eat this tree that I'm telling you not to eat from? That's a test. And, and we're told that the children of Israel, when they were spent 40 years in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8 says, God put them there to test them, to see what was in their hearts, for them to see. Because they refused to believe God to take them into the promised land. And now God leads them for 40 years to say, now are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me for the manna for tomorrow? You have to wait till tomorrow to eat some more. I'm going to give it to you, but you wait. I mean, you have to trust me for water. You have to trust me for everything. And, and God, this idea of testing permeates the Bible. In, in the New Testament, the early Christians were tested. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to, to Christians that were suffering for their faith. And listen to what he says. So be truly glad there is a wonderful, there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is more precious than mere gold. There's the first reason why he tests us, to see if your faith is is genuine. Is your faith for real or are you just going through the motions? The test helps to determine, helps to show that to you. But then he continues. 
So when your faith remains strong through many trials, there's the second thing. God uses the task to strengthen your faith, to help you realize that even in the midst of this struggle, I'm still going to trust God, even though it's being tested. When your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Because on that day, we will see the fulfillment of the promises of God and our faith will come to its fullness in in terms of the fulfillment of what we were longing for. But James is also somebody who writes about it. In James chapter 1, he writes to the people who are suffering. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And, and he goes on, he says that perseverance develops character and it's going to make you mature and strong. The testing helps your faith to grow just like it helped Abraham's faith to grow. Now, how is God testing your faith? Some of you are going through some deep like, like big trials, health trials, financial trials, you know, job situations, uh, could be relationship trials. But do you realize that the testing, that every Sunday we, we, we face a test? Like maybe you, you've never thought of this before. But, you know, every Sunday, you know, God says to us, he says, says, I want you to come together and worship me on a regular basis. And I want you to come together with the people of God, with the family of God and worship for your benefit. So we have a choice every Sunday. Now, you say, well, you don't, Mark, because you, you, you're, you're paid to be here, right? It's like, I, I have to keep, become here, right? But like, you have a choice, right? We, we all have a choice. I could, I could say, yeah, no, I don't want to worship God this week. I'm, I want to do, do my own thing. I want to do something more important. That's a test. I mean, uh, you think about other things in our lives, even when we're at, even when we're at worship. How am, I, how am I actually responding in worship? Am I just going? Is God, or is my attention and my focus truly on God? Am I truly worshiping him from my heart? Or am I just saying, yeah, I wonder what we're going to do after this. I wonder what we're going to go to eat. You know, I wonder what's, what's for the rest of the day. It's a task to say, are you really, do you really treasure God as your ultimate treasure? Or are other things more important? You know, every time the offering plate is passed, it's like we, we're confronted with, Am I going to be generous as God calls me to be generous? Or am I going to say, man, I'm really with, you know, you think about how much money I gave last year. Man, if I just use that, I could, I could probably get a new car this year. Or we could do that big vacation if I just give a little bit less to the church and worship God. You know, every, that's a test, right? God calls us to worship him with our, with what we have. He calls us to worship him with the praise of our lips. How are we, how are we expressing our faith? That's part of the test. Are we going to use our time and abilities and and gifts to serve God? Are we going to say, no, I'm going to use those for my own benefit? See, how we answer these questions could help us know if what what is said about Abraham can be said about us. Since he embraced the promises, he was able to sacrifice his most precious possession. Have you embraced the promises of God? Have you come to the point where you say, God is so true and so real in my life. And what he said, I believe what he said to the point that this is more valuable. His promises and what I'm looking forward to is more valuable than anything else in life. That's what we have to come to. That's what he was asking Abraham to do. And that's what he's asking each one of us to do. Come to the point 
where you realize that this is so real, so true, that nothing else comes close to the value that I find in Jesus and what God has promised. Abraham's life and future was wrapped up in his son. His son was becoming his savior. And God wanted to make sure he understood that God was the only true savior. And you look at your life and you have to decide, and I can't do it for you, but you need to look at your life and say, what in my life have I put in the place of Christ, my savior? What is it that I am longing for to give me meaning and purpose in life? What is it that I'm hoping is going to bring me real fulfillment? Is it, man, if I just get that new job, then I'm going to really going to, life would be great and I can really live and I really enjoy life. Or, or if I could just get a new home or if I could just get this, buy this, or if I could just marry that person or, or maybe find a relationship or if I could just have a kid. Like there's so many things we think this is going to be what I need. And God says, no, I'm what you need. I'm making promises to you. You need to trust me. You may go through a hundred years when you may not see what you long for, but it's okay because I have something better for you. You need to embrace the promises to the point that nothing else is as important as what Jesus Christ has done for me. And if you have a difficult, you find this to be a difficult topic, Maybe because you feel like, man, I failed God too many times. Let me remind you that 2,000 years after Abraham, Jesus came. He died for your sin. He died for all the ways I fail and you fail, all the ways which we've let him down. And he invites us to come to him again. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul, listen carefully to this verse. Paul says, since he, talking about God, God the Father, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? I mean, if God loved you so much that he gave his only son, like you think about the, the, the agony that, that Abraham went through, God himself said, I'm allowing my son to suffer and die for the sin of the world. If he is willing to do that, don't you think he is committed to doing everything? And and Paul says, he's going to do everything else. What is it on this life that could be any better than what God wants to give you? The answer to that question is nothing, okay? In case you're struggling with that one. There is nothing that you can dream about That would be so wonderful that in any way it could even come close to being better than what God has for us. And you need to go to the cross and say, God, if if you allowed Jesus to die for my sin, to give me life, then I'm going to believe that you want to give me everything. You want to give me things that I can't even imagine. I can't even dream of. That's what faith is all about. Seeing the unseen, looking forward to that city, that country, that what we long for, our true homeland, it's going to be in the future and we can't see it yet, but by faith, we believe it's going to happen and we need to trust God for it. So what am I holding on to that I think is more valuable than what God promises me? Maybe you need to embrace the promises and give up the thing that you've been putting your hope in. Let's pray. Our Father, in response to this passage, I feel like we should be willing to pray, God, take it all because I want you and what you have for me.
Help us to get to the point where we have embraced the promises of God to the point where nothing else is as important as what you have said and what you've promised. Help us even as we conclude this service in worship and singing these, these final songs to think carefully about the words, to realize that nothing is, is, is as valuable as Christ, that he is better than anything else in this world. Thank you for the promises you made. Thank you for Abraham that he passed the test. Help us to think about the tests that we are facing. And we, may we, by faith, trusting in you, pass our own tests. In Jesus' name, amen.